Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome back to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to delve deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific. I'm Martin Pierce. It's been a while since the last pod, but we are back today with what I hope will be a cracking discussion about the issue of grand corruption as we sit down with the man who wants to push for an international anti-corruption court. But before we get into that, I'd like to welcome my co-host for today's podcast, Dr. Sharon Bessel from Crawford School of Public Policy. Some listeners might remember Sharon on the podcast earlier this year when we discussed sexual health and gender equality on the pod, All Things Being Equal, with Babatundi Oshitimen. Now, sadly, Babatundi Oshitimen has passed away since we recorded that podcast, but Sharon has actually written a lovely uh, obituary, which is published on Policy Forum. You can check it out there. We'll include a link uh, in the text accompanying this podcast. Welcome back, Sharon. Thanks, Martin. It's great to be back on the podcast again. Sharon, perhaps you could do the honours of introducing our guest for the podcast today. Absolutely. So today we have the pleasure of chatting with Mark L. Wolfe, who is a United States District Court judge for the District of Massachusetts. Judge Wolfe is also an adjunct lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School and a senior fellow at the Carr Centre for Human Rights. He's also chairman of Integrity Initiatives International, and this is the organisation that's leading the campaign to establish the International Anti-Corruption Court that you mentioned. Judge Wolf has some very interesting things to say about corruption. Um, He talks about the fact that it's not a victimless crime, that we really need to think seriously about how we tackle these problems at at a global as well as a national level. So, Martin, this is an interview I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well. So the topic for our discussion, as you mentioned today, is corruption. But what we're talking about here is not of the scale that might involve, I don't know, bribing a police officer to be let off a speeding ticket or having one too many lunch breaks on the taxpayer dollar. Instead, what we're talking about is the kind of corruption that can cripple economies, that can turn countries into terrorist breeding grounds and pose a threat to international peace and security. But before we begin, a quick reminder that if you have any comments on today's podcast, you can always reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Judge Marco Wolf, thanks for joining the podcast. Very nice to be here. Let's start by talking about grand corruption. What do we mean by that and why is it important? Grand corruption is the abuse of public office by a nation's leaders for private gain. It's important because it has uh, devastating consequences that I can describe in detail, but it's extraordinarily costly. Grand corruption breeds constituents for terrorists. Uh, There's a complete uh, correlation between the countries that are most corrupt at the top and those that 
are most abusive of their citizens' human rights, and uh, significantly uh, indignation at grand corruption, particularly by young people and especially by students, is destabilizing countries like Egypt and uh, uh, Ukraine, and in the process creating grave dangers for international peace and security. So there is a growing uh, realization around the world uh, that grand corruption is not merely a domestic concern, and there's an, it is urgently important that the international community uh, begin to respond to it more effectively. You mentioned Egypt and the Ukraine there. Can you give us some examples of grand corruption? Well, uh, yes. Uh, the flagrant, uh, extravagant uh, corruption of Viktor Yanukovych, the president of Ukraine, uh, sparked the Maidan uprisings. Uh, and after those uprisings, uh, the young people, many of them students, and the older people who joined them went into uh, Yanukovych's home. And what did they find? Uh, restaurants, a zoo with exotic animals, uh, all kinds of expensive cars. Uh, you know, people had restaurants. Uh, people had generally understood uh, that uh, he was robbing his country of large amounts of money, but uh, even the leaders of the Maidan uprising, who I know and who I work with now, uh, were shocked uh, by the extravagance, the opulence of it all. Judge Wolf, you've called for the creation of an international anti-corruption court as, um, as a mechanism to, to deal with some of these issues. Um, and indeed, it's your advocacy for such a court that led to the, the creation of Integrity in Initiatives International. Can you tell us why you think a court to, to deal with anti-corruption internationally is, is so needed? Yes, as I said, and if I can amplify what I said uh, earlier about the consequences, the consequences of grand corruption are devastating. Uh, it's estimated that about a trillion dollars in bribes are paid each year. Uh, ten times more is lost uh, to grand corruption and to corruption in developing countries than they receive in foreign aid. And this isn't just a problem in developing countries. Russia has the third largest illicit flow of uh, capital out of the country of any nation in the world. Uh, the constituents for Boko Haram in Nigeria, for example, or the Taliban in Afghanistan are not religious fanatics primarily. They're people who support these organizations because these terrorist organizations have positioned themselves as the opponents of grand corruption in their nation's capitals. Uh, as I said earlier, there's a complete correlation between the countries that are most abusive of human rights and those that are led by the most corrupt leaders, and corruption is not a victimless crime. In 2013, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights said corruption kills. The amount of money lost to corruption would be sufficient to feed the uh, world's hungry 80 times over. If you go to a country like Angola in Africa, it's a very wealthy country. It has oil. It has uh, valuable minerals. Uh, the president's daughter, Isabel de Santos, is said to be the richest woman in Africa, worth $3 billion, yet Angola has the highest percentage of children who don't live to the age of five. So corruption is particularly grand corruption, is not a victimless crime. And indignation at uh, grand corruption is causing upheaval in countries like 
Egypt, uh, where Mubarak was driven out, or Ukraine. Uh, so in Ukraine, indignation at grand corruption leads to the ouster of President Yanukovych. He goes to Russia. Russia invades Crimea, and then the United States, the European Union, Australia can no longer effectively collaborate with Russia on serious international security issues like Syria and Iran. So as I said, uh, it's increasingly recognized that grand corruption is not uh, merely a domestic concern. Grand corruption flourishes in many countries not because of a lack of laws. 181 countries are parties to the UN Convention Against Corruption called the UNCAC. Under the UNCAC, they all have obligations to have laws making it a crime to engage in bribery and money laundering and misappropriation of national resources. Uh, the problem is that those laws are not enforced, especially against corrupt leaders, because those leaders control the police, the prosecutors, and the courts. They won't permit the honest, effective investigation, prosecution, and punishment of their friends, their families, and themselves. So the proposed International Anti-Corruption Court uh, is needed to deal with the devastating consequences of grand corruption. It wouldn't create any new legal obligations. It would only uh, create a place where uh, existing domestic laws could be enforced against a nation's leaders if that country was unwilling or unable to enforce those laws itself. As a sort of follow-on question there, you've described an international anti-corruption court as being similar to the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Does that mean it would also face similar problems? I mean, how effective would it be if corrupt governments simply refused to cooperate with it? Well, I, I think uh, you've identified uh, really the greatest challenge to the court, uh, because it's increasingly, the, the logic of having an international anti-corruption court tends to be recognized when it's explained. Uh, the challenging question is, how uh, do you get uh, countries with corrupt leaders uh, to join the court? Or how do you get them to be part of the jurisdiction? But we do have... Uh, a world order, a world order that in some respects is particularly challenged these days. But we have the UN Convention Against Corruption, for example. It uh, being uh, submitting to the jurisdiction of the court could be a requirement of uh, the UNCAC. Uh, there are many uh, countries uh, that rely on bilateral foreign aid and uh, money, uh, loans or grants from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund submitting to the jurisdiction of the court could become uh, a requirement uh, of getting those loans. Uh, there are uh, trade treaties that, uh, like the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, uh, Treaty, uh, that could be vehicles uh, for, again, requiring countries to submit to the jurisdiction of the court if, uh, to be a member of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, could require submitting to this uh, enforcement mechanism. So I do think there are vehicles uh, that could be used to encourage countries to join. And, you know, more than 100 countries join the International Criminal Court. And some of them, uh, some of their leaders are being prosecuted there. And that's because there's pressure uh, from citizens to. Uh, to join, and I think uh, that uh, in some countries, 
we're getting to the point where officials will be elected, leaders will be elected, uh, who would want to submit to the jurisdiction of the court. For example, right now, the Minister of Justice in Ukraine is a supporter of this court. Now, he's not yet the president, but he may be. Uh, similarly, uh, in April of this year, 2017, President Juan Manuel Santos, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016, made Colombia the first uh, country to uh, endorse the court. So there's a considerable indignation about grand corruption in many countries throughout the world. And if uh, some of these uh, leaders want to stay in office or win office, they have an incentive to uh, join this court. Just to, to, to think about the the comparisons with the the International Criminal Court, one of the criticisms that has been um, targeted towards the ICC is that it has tended to target the leaders of small and often African nations um, while ignoring crimes that are committed by wealthier, more powerful Western nations. And I don't think any of us would want to be suggesting that we shouldn't be going after human rights violations committed in, in poor countries or outside the West. But there is a question about you know, the, the, the accountability of powerful nations. So how would you see the International Anti-Corruption Court dealing with the more powerful countries who may not be quite so persuaded by some of those incentives that you've outlined? Well, I, I think uh, that uh, there were really two responses to that. One, the, the International Criminal Court, the ICC, is often criticized because all of its cases so far have been against Africans. Uh, but... Uh, uh, more African countries join the court than from any other region, A. B, there have been a lot of uh, crimes, war crimes, genocide uh, efforts uh, in Africa since the inception of the court, uh, and many of the investigations concerning Africa have been requested by African countries themselves. Having said that, uh, I think even the people at the ICC would agree it's a fair criticism uh, that major powers have not only blocked uh, investigations of themselves, uh, but of their allies. So, for example, China has essentially immunized North Korea, and this is a problem. On the other hand, uh, I think we're beginning to see a trend of uh, a wider focus for the ICC. For example, uh, it now has investigations of countries outside of Africa. That includes an investigation of a uh, possible uh, violations or crimes within its jurisdiction in, Af in Afghanistan, which is a member of the court. If it turns out that those investigations show uh, war crimes, say, uh, by Americans or British, then they might be subject to jurisdiction in the ICC. The question is the principle of complementarity, which I alluded to earlier without elaborating on. The ICC and the proposed International Anti-Corruption Court, the IACC, would op operate on a principle of complementarity. So that means it's only if a country is unwilling or unable to investigate, prosecute, and if appropriate, punish uh, its own people that they would be subject to prosecution in the ICC now or the IACC in the future. So if there's evidence that's developed uh, that uh, Americans, say, committed war crimes in Afghanistan, then the issue would be uh, they haven't been prosecuted. 
was the decision in the United States not to prosecute them the result of uh, honest, good faith exercise of judgment? Either there's not sufficient evidence or they have a good excuse. The president and his people ordered them to do it. Uh, perhaps it would be a reason not to prosecute somebody in the United States. It wouldn't be fair. It might not. But, uh, and, you know, if there was, if, if the prosecutors and judges in the ICC find that the decisions not to prosecute were made seriously and fairly, Americans couldn't be prosecuted for war crimes in Afghanistan. If, on the other hand, they find uh, that those cr alleged crimes uh, were not uh, properly considered for prosecution in the United States, you could find uh, Americans in the dock in the Hague. Many have been embarrassed recently by the Paradise Papers and last year by the Panama Papers, these massive leaks of financial information which have exposed the sort of offshore tax avoidance strategies used by the wealthiest in society. What can these papers and these revelations in them tell us about the problem of high-level corruption? That's a really good question. So the Panama Papers, uh, with which uh, I'm more familiar because the Paradise Papers were published as I was on the airplane here to Australia, uh, gave us uh, a lot of information about people very close to Vladimir Putin in Russia, for example. It's long been understood that uh, Putin was fabulously wealthy and that uh, uh, his wealth uh, came from the abuse of office. But this provided all kinds of details. For example, we learned from the Panama Papers that his childhood, his, his close friend from childhood, a, a cellist, a renowned cellist, who claimed he should not be subject to U.S. sanctions because he was not a rich man? Uh, the Panama Papers tell us had millions of has millions of dollars in his name in accounts in Switzerland and other places like the Cayman Islands. That in his name uh, he owns uh, large shares of many companies, including about four percent of a Russian bank worth four, you know, eleven billion dollars. So that information. Uh, could be converted into evidence uh, by investigators and prosecutors. But it's, it would be futile and indeed foolish to expect that Vladimir Putin would be prosecuted or convicted in a Russian court. And that's why some forum, independent forum, uh, uh, for the use of that evidence is essential uh, in countries that are ruled by kleptocrats. Uh, and if there was an international anti-corruption court, uh, the evidence uh, generated from the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers uh, could be effectively used. Transparency is very, of, of beneficial ownership is very important. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. 
uh, money obtained corruptly is usually not kept in the country. It's moved in the international financial system uh, through shell companies, where it, which make it very difficult to discern who the beneficial owners are. And there's property, beautiful, valuable property in London, in Paris, New York City, uh, that's actually owned by kleptocrats. And uh, it's important to improve the capacity of the international community to follow those complex uh, money trails. But it's important also to realize uh, that increased transparency or ability to follow the money are not ends in themselves. If there's not some place where the evidence can be put to honest good use, uh, those efforts uh, ultimately will be unavailing. Judge Wolf, I wanted to return to um, an issue that you raised at the beginning when uh, you talked about the fact that corruption is not a victimless crime and, and the consequences are very deep. And I think personally one of the very strongest arguments for seriously tackling grand corruption is because of the implications for social policy, for, social, uh, for poverty alleviation. And within a context of the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, poverty alleviation is, is at the forefront of the global policy agenda. But we also know that in some of the most notoriously corrupt countries, we see serious under-resourcing of healthcare, education, the most basic services. Um, and, and I think as part of that, there are also very important issues of intergenerational equity as leaders today undermine the future of, of their citizens. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tease some of those issues out a little more and, and comment on, on the importance of those, those connections. Well, I think you've identified an extremely important issue and a reason also uh, why there's so much interest in the international anti-corruption court, especially among young people. As I said earlier, uh, grand corruption is not a victimless crime. Uh, money uh, that is essentially misappropriated, national resources that are misappropriated uh, by kleptocrats are resources that should be used uh, for the health and education, for example, of citizens uh, who deserve a good education, who deserve uh, uh, the good health to uh, pursue happiness in their own ways. And uh, corruption uh, robs their countries of those resources. Uh, there are quid pro quos exchanges for corruption, uh, and this is true in my country. Uh, I used to prosecute corrupt public officials. That's what led President Reagan to nominate me in the United States Senate to confirm me uh, uh, in 1985 as a United States district judge. Uh, when uh, a bribe is paid to build a school, for example, it, it almost... Uh, always will be more expensive, it will be poorly built, uh, it won't uh, serve its intended pur purpose, and often it's dangerous. Uh, these buildings collapse on people, and we have this in Boston, Massachusetts. It's not just in remote parts of the world. Um, that's very serious, and as I said uh, earlier, uh, people, particularly young people, in many countries are now uh, indignant about grand corruption. They don't accept it as an inevitable way of life the way their parents and ancestors uh, traditionally have. And they're uh, going to the streets uh, to try to do something about it because uh, they do want uh, 
countries where to live in countries in which they can get a quality education in which there will be jobs for them when they graduate and they want uh, a fair level playing field so if they're intelligent and industrious uh, they can progress in their professions and in their work and, and not be disadvantaged by people who pay bribes. One of the, the arguments for, for, for tackling corruption and, and providing healthcare education and so on for young people is often framed in terms of the development of, of human capital and it's a very instrumentalist argument. It struck me in a very positive way that you were talking about entitlements, that you were talking um, in, in a way that I would see as being very much about people's rights to to, to, to education and to healthcare and what opportunities that offers. I wonder, do you see something like the, the International Anti-Corruption Court as an international mechanism for, for rethinking and, and perhaps then enforcing something like a global social contract where we begin to take human rights more seriously? Yes. The United States Declaration of Independence, uh, I think, was one of the early uh, statements of universal human rights. It says our founding fathers in the United States believe uh, that every person had certain inalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then the next line says uh, governments are constituted uh, to essentially serve those their citizens and uh, let them uh, have and enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, corruption, grand corruption, is completely the opposite of that. Uh, those uh, holding public office do not hold public office to serve their citizens, and uh, they hold that office to enrich themselves and uh, their friends and colleagues. So the enforcement of existing laws that make bribery and misappropriation of public uh, resources illegal sh should, uh, well, a couple things should happen. If, if there was an international anti-corruption court, it would be a place where these people could be prosecuted and punished and for grand corruption, kleptocracy. It's a fundamental principle of the criminal law that uh, the th credible threat that somebody will be prosecuted and punished will deter, will discourage, so it will diminish grand corruption if that credible threat can be established. In addition, the ultimate goal is not to lock somebody up, uh, but when you lock up a kleptocrat, it creates an opportunity uh, in a democracy uh, for good government to be good politics, for people who are properly perceived as wanting to hold office to serve their citizens rather than to rob them, uh, get elected. And then uh, the human rights of uh, the citizens will be uh, respected uh, rather than disregarded. Judge Wolf, blurred boundaries between political and business interests are not uncommon in many countries. Um, how do you see the role of the International Anti-Corruption Court in dealing with these sort of complex entanglements that come about when wealthy businessmen, or indeed individuals from family business, political dynasties, enter politics? The, the International Anti-Corruption Court uh, in my conception, would have jurisdiction over a nation's leaders, uh, people appointed by them, and those who act in concert with them. 
So that means it would have jurisdiction over kleptocrats who run their countries, rule their countries, and the people who pay them, uh, or the people who hold the uh, privatized national resources that uh, uh, are being held in trust for public uh, officials, in part. Uh, so right now, uh, in the world order, we have the United States Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, but the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act only permits the, pro uh, the prosecution and punishment of individuals and organizations which pay bribes. It doesn't permit the prosecution and punishment of the officials who often demand them and in any event receive them. So the International Anti-Corruption Court would add a very important missing dimension. Uh, it would focus on the demand side as well as the supply side of bribery. Uh, there are 40 other countries that have uh, laws similar to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act pursuant to the OECD Convention against bribery, but only two or three of them have ever enforced those laws at all. So uh, it's really important to have a forum, uh, an institution that would have elite, elite investigators, who would have excellent uh, prosecutors and impartial judges to give integrity uh, to these laws that countries uh, have adopted around the world, but whose lawyers, who, whose leaders, and the private people uh, with whom they have this symbiotic, corrupt relationship, and they're able to ignore the laws in their countries. Australia, as you know, has a federal system like the United States. Um, and we currently only have um, anti-corruption bodies at state level. So this goes to, to the point that you're making. There have been calls in Australia for a federal anti-corruption body. Um, and I think you've already spoken powerfully to the, to the benefit of that. But just as we, we draw to a close in this conversation, I wonder if there's a message that you would have for Australia or indeed for, for other federal states um, in terms of how they should be thinking about these, these issues and, and, and um, you know, the balance between state and federal responsibility. Well, uh, I'm not expert on Australia, and that should be recognised. But I, I will say uh, that... Uh, I'm here uh, to speak at the New South Wales uh, Public Sector Anti-Corruption Conference, uh, sponsored uh, by the well, the Australian Public Sector Anti-Corruption Conference, uh, sponsored uh, by the New South Wales Independent Anti-Corruption uh, Commission and its Queensland counterpart. Uh, I was surprised to learn uh, that while these bodies, which seem to be very constructive, they don't have the power to prosecute, but uh, they have the power to essentially generate uh, prosecutions. Uh, it seems to me that they're very uh, positive organizations. And I was surprised uh, to learn that there's not a Commonwealth counterpart to that uh, because uh, there's really seems to me, no reason to believe that state and local officials uh, may be corrupt, but federal officials, Commonwealth officials, wouldn't be. And um, there, anytime you create a new organization, uh, there are issues of sort of seamlessly integrating it and getting it to collaborate with existing organizations. But um, I met yesterday uh, 
with the uh, leaders and the staff of the Commonwealth organization whose uh, jurisdiction is exclusively law enforcement. And I got the vivid impression uh, that they do very constructive work. Uh, so I, I, it's just a question because, as I say, I'm not expert, but why not uh, have a, a Commonwealth counterpart to the state commissions? And, uh, uh, you know, we've learned in, in, in the United States, depending it, where we have overlapping jurisdictions, so, you know, a federal prosecutor can bring a case in federal court against a corrupt state and local official. The state courts could too, but they don't very much. Depending on how the jurisdictions uh, define, it seems to me it could be very constructive. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we will watch this proposal for uh, International Anti-Corruption Court with great interest. Well, if I may, I hope you'll do more than watch it, because what am I doing in Australia? Uh, I believe... uh, that Australia has the potential to become a real leader in the effort to create the International Anti-Corruption Court. It is highly respected around the world on many uh, issues. And uh, I learned uh, well before Donald Trump uh, was elected president uh, that this proposal would not succeed if it was perceived to be primarily or exclusively an American initiative. Uh, There is uh, interest in this in Africa and Latin America, but if there's going to be a campaign comparable to the campaign that led to the creation of the International Criminal Court, comparable to the campaign that led to the uh, adoption of the Landmines Treaty, comparable to the campaign uh, that led to responsibility to protect, and indeed comparable to the anti-nuclear campaign uh, that just won the new Nobel Peace Prize, I can. Uh, it's very important uh, that uh, Australia be a leader because Australia was a leader in all those other initiatives I just mentioned. So I'm grateful f- for your very uh, sophisticated questions and the opportunity to respond to them. It's it's my great hope, uh, uh, having just been in Adelaide uh, now in Canberra, going to Sydney tomorrow, uh, that there will be a large number of Australians who learn about uh, this proposal, and a good number of them, including uh, many young people who uh, want Australia to take a leading role in creating, establishing this court. We will watch the uh, campaign for the creation of uh, an international anti-corruption court with great interest. Judge Mark L. Wolf, many thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Judge Mark L. Wolf there, and thanks very much to him for his time. That was a really fascinating discussion, I thought. Sharon, what did you make of that? I agree, Martin. That was every bit as a bit as interesting as I, I hoped it would be. There are a couple of messages that I would take away from the things that, that Judge Wolf said that I think are really important. The first is that, as we said at the beginning when we were introducing Judge Wolf, corruption is not a victimless crime. It, it really hurts people. It hurts societies. It has an impact on the extent to which social services can be delivered. It has an extent on the ways in which we can respond to poverty. So I think that was a really powerful point that Judge Wolf made. 
And I must say, I really like the way he framed this in terms of human rights. So often we hear about corruption impacting on the economy, perhaps undermining human capital because we're not putting money into education. But really, corruption hurts people. It, it, it undermines human rights. It undermines our ability to make societies the best places for people to live. And again, I think that's a really powerful take-home message. And the final thing that, that Judge Wolf talked about that I think we need to keep in mind is that this is an issue that matters to young people. You know, the future depends on how well we can resource, how well we can build societies. And so for the younger generation, this is a really serious issue. And I think it's beholden on all of us to think seriously about how how we tackle it. So a fascinating discussion. That was interesting. He returned to the issue of, of young people and young people not tolerating these things on, on, a, on a few occasions in that interview. So what about his push for the, this idea for an international anti-corruption court? Were you convinced by that? Look, I think so. I, I would be keen to hear the debates amongst the experts on this. But I think the point he makes that in many circumstances these issues can't be dealt with at the national level and so we need to think about a way of governing at the international level, at the global level, is a really important one. And of course these issues have a very strong global dimension to them. You know, corruption occurs in one country but the funds are moved around the world. And so I think his point that we need to think about this internationally is an important one and we do have the International Criminal Court to look to as a model so I think this is a fascinating space to watch in terms of the development of global policy. So do you think we could actually see an International Anti-Corruption Court at some point in the near future? Look, I think it's a strong possibility. I mean, when the International Criminal Court was first mooted, there was there was scepticism, there was opposition. I'm sure we'll see the same kinds of pushback against the idea of an international anti-corruption court. Um, there are very powerful interests that would be opposed to the idea of, course, of, a, yeah, of a court of, of this kind. Um, but I do think we're seeing um, a continued rise of... Um, thinking around global governance, of efforts to, to, to think about policy at a global level. And so I think this is a development that we, we could indeed see come to fruition in, in perhaps the next decade, if not the next few, few years. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how this idea develops from here. It's been lovely having you on the podcast again, Sharon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Martin. It's been a pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.